Bloomberg reported that Russia's war-related industry is booming. What's happening right now considering military-industrial complex in Russia? We have to keep in mind the um, general picture, not just military-industrial complex. Many people, when they talk about, uh, which is booming, obviously, naturally, there are huge uh, expansion of the military-industrial complex. People have to keep in mind that military-industrial complex, modern military-industrial complexes, they are always dual technology industries. And once you launch military-industrial complex, uh, the way it operates in Russia, it immediately pulls up, so to speak, uh, other industries. But again, uh, it wouldn't have been possible without overall industrial health of Russian economy, which, of course, our government agency, Rostat, which, by the way, many uh, uh, American and Western uh, economists use data from, it shows an incredible growth in uh, what is called adjacent industries. For example, uh, you build more tanks and more something. But you also, if you look attentively, and this was happening actually for a while now, you have the huge increase in the production of, let's say, uh, uh, diesel engines, I mean, rolling stock, basically, from rail cars to locomotives to everything. You have the expansion in the commercial uh, airspace industry, and it goes across the board, including, of course, what uh, Russia is now the major, well, actually, number one, I think, exporter of grain. Russian uh, agriculture is booming. So it's across the board. It's not just military-industrial complex. Putin at the Valdoy Discussion Club talked about Sarmat and these new generation of nuclear weapons. When Russia started designing or producing these type of weapons? Oh, no, these are old um, uh, technologies, old uh, in relative terms, of course. Obviously, when you have research and development of such system as Sarmat or hypersonic weapons, it takes decades to develop them. And uh, it was actually, even in the Soviet Union, there were already uh, basically, um, how to put it politely, pre preliminary works conducted on the uh, preparation for the development of the hypersonic weapons, for example, and of course the uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles with such energy capacity as Sarmat, which of course has pretty much, uh, you know, can fly around the world. Uh, let alone if we talk about something like uh, Burivestnik, which is, of course, known as Petrel or Skyfall. So it has all roots in the Soviet uh, times. It was in Gorbachev time, uh, times when actually this was essentially either ground to a halt or annihilated altogether a number of the programs. But of course, um, once the Soviet Union collapsed, you, just to illustrate to you. There was a program called HOLAD, the cold, which had a very serious NASA uh, involvement in Russia, where they uh, demonstrated their uh, feasibility of the hypersonic, controlled hypersonic flight based on their old S-200 air defense complex booster missile. So, and uh, they achieved already then uh, something like 40-second, you know, hypersonic flight. It was early 90s. NASA collected this data too, together with the Russians. But after that, Russians moved on. But in the United States, they pretty much, well, killed the program. They didn't take it seriously. Well, guess what? Now you can see the results. 
Russia has the plethora of the basically uh, hypersonic weapons, while the United States doesn't have any. So there you go. Is there any relations considering NASA and Russians right now? Yeah, there are. I mean, um, first, NASA already confirmed a few days ago, I believe. Uh, I didn't read their uh, news uh, in detail, but I know that NASA is, wants to continue to cooperate with Roscosmos in terms of their, uh, you know, uh, uh, catching the ride to the International Space Station at Soyuz spaceships. And uh, there are still fairly significant contacts there. I mean, unlike the... Washington, official Washington, D.C., NASA definitely is much more pragmatic in this respect. So, and do not forget, a uh, couple of Russian cosmonauts have been already uh, delivered to the International Space Station or whatever the name of the SpaceX uh, Project Musk's uh, uh, rocket or capsule. So it's, it's pretty fruitful, I would say, for now. How this conflict between Israel and Palestine going to influence the war in Ukraine? Well, um, it's already influencing it in terms of switching the <clears throat> focus of public opinion, basically, in the West, away from the catastrophe which is happening as we speak, for especially around Avdiivka operational access. Uh, that, well, again, keep in mind, I, mean, I do not want uh, to be <clears throat> very cynical, but because I work a lot with numbers, and when you look at operations, you operate with numbers only. Of course, you do, uh, you know, uh, you can consider the issues, for example, if you talk about the units or formations, you talk about the morale, you know, fighting spirit and things of this nature. But you operate with numbers. You look at numbers. You have to understand that just in the October alone, by <clears throat> Uh, latest data by Russian Defense Ministry, uh, Ukraine, Armed Forces of Ukraine, lost something around 7,000 already killed alone. So, and when you look at this, you are, uh, again, as I stated, uh, you look at the uh, special military operation which stretches 1,000 kilometers in front with the hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of troops involved. So, in militarily, um, if we consider obviously the fact that Israel treated Palestine as, you know, in, inhumanely, to put it mildly, not that I am uh, in any way obviously uh, exonerate those uh, Palestinian, uh, Hamas primarily terrorists who basically, you know, wholesale took hostage of Israeli civilians and killed them uh, basically indiscriminately. So, but one evil doesn't cancel, makes one wrong doesn't make makes, you know, the other wrong right. So, but the point is, uh, it was kind of uh, coming in many respects, this uh, thing. And uh, especially when we begin to consider uh, the rather, sh I mean, shocking news from the Egypt, uh, whose intel uh, chef spoke openly about it, and it was in the Times of Israel, this article, that basically Egypt, 10 days prior to this, uh, basically, uh, attack, um, warned Israel. That takes a completely different, you know, <laughs> under, you know, different perspective. So militarily, it is, um, well, Israel going to suppress it if they'll decide, albeit I, I don't expect them actively involved on the ground within the, uh, Gaza. Strip, but of course, the issue is that um, for Net Netanyahu, 
especially considering the development on the Ukrainian front and knowing what is happening in the United States politically. It's, it was a chance actually to both maybe finish off the Gaza Strip and in the same time get involved the United States into the uh, war with Iran, theoretically. This is how they think. It doesn't mean that it's going to happen. And again, by the reaction of Hezbollah, for example, which wanted to stay away from this whole thing, it's also very indicative. So we have a really big game here, which, of course, in the end, doesn't help Palestinian cause one way or another. And as I already stated, we will see now the wholesale war crimes committed by the Israeli forces against the Palestinian population including the so-called, you know, indiscriminate, well, some of them probably will reach the target, but we have to keep in mind also that Hamas is pretty shrewd itself, hiding behind, you know, uh, in their civilian buildings, having those tunnels and things like that. So it's a bad situation. And again, I am on record on both sides. There are no good people. And, but politically, and geopolitically, because of being the uh, basically hotspot for decades, you know, and which goes back to 1948, I believe it was the uh, United Nations uh, declaration and uh, recognition of the uh, Israel or state of Israel. So it comes down to the, this animosity between uh, you know, Arabs and Jews, basically, and that has a much more complex, uh, uh, so to speak, um, structure, so to speak, this conflict, than merely the fact that Netanyahu, uh, you know, boys, uh, uh, you know, basically they violated their, uh, one of the major mosques uh, for uh, uh, Muslims. And that's where it all started, the reaction from that, which of course haven't been reported properly in the Western media. But, um, when you look at this, and especially the way things um, unfolded, there are questions, and I don't have the answer. But obviously, the global public opinion now is concentrated on that, despite the fact that in terms of the scale of, pardon me, slaughter in Ukraine, Ukraine dwarfs what is going on now in uh, Palestine. But uh, Palestine is a you know focus of the world's public opinion, and it will be attached to it uh, for a while, I think. Zelensky just came out and talked about this conflict in Israel, and he said that Russia is behind this attack of Hamas on Israel. Well, because it has no choice, uh, again, just as we speak now, there's a Rus major Russian advances on the crucial Avdiivka operational axis. And again, we look at the slaughter of the uh, armed forces of Ukraine. It's just unbelievable. So what he has, his regime is basically now uh, holding by the thread. So he has to also now consider this fact that suddenly United States, which is the main sponsor of the uh, Kiev regime, suddenly public opinion, uh, public attention, obviously switched to Israel-Palestine issue. So what are you going to do? And, <laughs> so, and plus we have the situation which uh, now Biden wants to, you know, allegedly by some British, you know, uh, tabloid ex express to uh, ask for 100 billion dollars you know one check blank check for 2024 for ukraine so you have to understand that he's desperate in this respect and what what's left for him to say 
I'm wondering why he didn't say that actually aliens also got involved on Russian side, you know, to, uh, I mean, fight Ukrainians. It's, um, it's all, all desperation. It's all actually comical to, to a certain degree. And uh, of course, he will say that. How Russia feels about this conflict in Israel? What's their policy in that region, in your opinion? Oh, Russia is very uh, unequivocally uh, behind the uh, Palestinian statehood. They, Mr. Putin today just stated, you want to stop it? Give Palestinians statehood. It's one of them. I'm not a specialist in the region, and obviously I understand a very complex issue. It's not just political or geopolitical or land or what have you. There is a huge religious element involved in there between Muslims and uh, 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 Jews. But uh, Russia, obviously, supporting the uh, Palestine statehood, it is also Russia position in this respect uh, also is very, uh, how to put it, uh, very clear on terms in terms of uh, acceptance of the existence of the state of Israel. Russia by no means denies state of Israel its statehood, and there is it's just a matter in what framework it's gonna uh, exist. And of course, uh, there is no even doubt about it that Russia, and not only Russia, anybody who has half brain, uh, accuses United States of being absolutely partial in managing this conflict because United States is the main managing force in this conflict, not least through a very powerful Jewish lobby, Israel lobby in the United States, which effectively Israel lobby essentially uh, runs the foreign policy of the United States. So there you go. And Russia in this particular case is extremely, I mean, uh, on, on the target. And it's not only Russia. Many people who, as I already stated, have IQ above room temperature, they know that uh, basically the United States is actively involved on the side of the state of Israel. And because of that, there is no uh, honest brokerage and uh, between uh, Palestine and Israel because uh, Israel is constantly supported by the United States. So this will continue for a while again. Um, I guess Netanyahu wants to finish off Gaza. And we have to keep in mind that the very well-known fact that Hamas essentially is a creation of the Mossad uh, to um, kind of offset the Palestinian Liberation Organization. So there's a lot of, you know, so to speak, dirt on both sides in there. And uh, what can I say? It's tragedy, of course. It is tragedy for Palestinians, especially in Gaza, which have been abused for decades now, treated inhumanely. And now they, you know, just what can I say? We have this. Uh, it all came to a head tragically for both sides. But Israel eventually will be able to handle this militarily because Hamas, of course, is a no contest. And uh, what can I say? It just doesn't matter how they decide to proceed with that. China's policy in Israel is so similar to that one of Russia. They're trying to keep everything calm and they're trying to advocate for negotiations, for peace agreements. What would be the next step for the Biden administration in that region? In this particular respect, uh, all American uh, foreign policy establishment and White House are essentially in the pockets of the IPAC. American-Israeli Political Action Committee. It's Israel lobby, powerful, extremely powerful, which effectively occupies most of the key positions uh, in the uh, Biden administration. It's in State Department. And if you look attentively from, uh, you know, the uh, 
Anthony Blinken to Victoria Nuland, these are all Jews with obviously very strong attachment to the to Israel. So in this particular case, I think uh, the United States will support uh, uh, Israel unequivocally, whatever they do, as they usually do, essentially. So even if uh, they uh, Israel decides to go for the genocidal uh, solution, which will which is horrible in itself. And they're already turning off water, lights, everything. They basically commit war crime already, as we speak, on the wholesale scale. Not that it's in any way exonerates Hamas or what they did to, you know, uh, Israeli civilians. But uh, United States will support it. So they send now this carrier battle group there, you know, to demonstrate the support. Not that it will do much. Israel has its own resources to deal with that. But uh, again, as I stated, uh, for Netanyahu and his cabinet, and Netanyahu is not, he, he is a very specific personality, so to speak. He definitely has uh, some signs of psychopathy. Well, he's psychopath, pretty much, as most of uh, uh, people and political leaders are uh, there. Uh, he pursues two uh, objectives, I think, as I already stated, to re uh, completely settle the issue with Gaza by means of taking full control of it and basically annihilating is as any kind of the semi-political entity. And secondly, his eyes are on Iran. He's a paranoid in terms of Iran, as many are in Likud party. And Iran is the only country which can beat Israel, essentially. So, and Israel has no resources, our own resources to do anything about Iran. And in this particular case, uh, the whole idea is to drag the United States directly into the conflict. And that is the danger. This is what is called the third party, which uh, Mr. Putin and Mr. Lavrov talk about constantly. Well, um, Israel will have issues of surviving if they really go for Iran. And the fact is because we might expect if United States decides to commit, so to speak, final act of its geopolitical suicide, it will go for Iran and it will get defeated there, you know? So, and what can I say? We're looking at a very dangerous, we're looking at a very dangerous situation, but in this particular case, neither Russia nor China uh, have any real levers except for what Russia was doing with Syria and trying to control Arab animosity towards Israel for the last um, eight years since the United uh, since Russia moved into Syria. So, but Arab street, mm, it's difficult to say, you know, uh, Egypt, for example, it is well known. Egypt is ready, is ready to fight uh, Israel to the last Palestinian. You know, so th this is also we shouldn't uh, basically uh, take account uh, that there is some willingness of Arab street to fight for Palestinians too. So it's complex and very complicated actually. So who knows? I mean, this is just the framework I described to you. What's going to come out of it? Well, obviously, Russia and China will be working tirelessly trying to contain it. But uh, overall, I mean, it's uh, Israel and the United States which are directly involved into that. And whoever controls Hamas, people say it's Mossad, you know, it's possible, possible.
do you think that this conflict right now in Israel gonna put a force on the Biden administration to go after negotiations with Russians? I'm pretty sure that Biden administration already is exploring this issue of negotiations. But the point is, uh, you negotiate when you are in equal or about equal positions. There is nothing to negotiate for Russia. Uh, the only way it's happening right now, it's going to be uh, either my way or the highway. And Russians already actually indicated this. Uh, Putin and uh, other top uh, brass, so to speak, of Russian uh, uh, political top, Mr. Patrushev, Mr. Medvedev, Mr. Lavrov, they speak on it constantly. There's nobody to negotiate with anything be the Kiev regime or Washington, D.C. And those people who live with this delusion that you can negotiate anything, they already missed the point completely. There will be only unconditional surrender, or rather conditional surrender. And conditions will be dictated by Russia. And there are well-known conditions. They have been very well formulated in the December 21, 2021 uh, uh, statement of Russian Minister of Foreign Affairs, which, of course, the statement of Russian uh, policy towards the issue of the security in Europe. So now, the, uh, uh, Mr. Medvedev, the second man in the Security Council of Russia and former president, no less, and maybe a future president too, he is on record. The main task now is the annihilation of the Kiev regime, period. So you do not negotiate with Zelensky. It's over. That's what the people in Washington, D.C., or as the defense minister of Italy, who they live in the virtual world. They do not understand the balance of power. And, I mean, they begin to get it. So in this particular case, Russia will continue with the special military operation until full uh, mobilizational potential of Ukraine is completely annihilated. And sadly, we have to talk not only about the... Um, industry, military industry, which is pretty much done by now. But we talk about their uh, 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 personnel and mobilization potential in terms of humans, so to speak. And uh, that's the reality the United States will have to live with after it's uh, all over. So there you go. At the end of the day, there will be no negotiation with the Zelensky administration. It would be with some someone else. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Yeah, oh, absolutely. The only reason you can negotiate with somebody is with the owners of Ukraine. The owners of Ukraine sit in Washington, D.C. And even with them, you not so much negotiate right now. We pass this thing. We pass this point. First, who are going to negotiate in Biden administration? With Biden, the guy lives in the, you know, I mean... His, uh, his place is the nursing, in nursing home, you know. What is happening with Biden, it's abuse of the senior citizen who most of the time doesn't know where he is. Who you talk to. You, If you talk at, about those people with Obamas uh, and others who run the Biden administration behind the scenes, how are you going to negotiate with Obamas? Obama is an amateur in the foreign policy. He always was. He was always pretty much amateur in anything. The only thing he knew, he was a race baiting, and that's about it. So, and when you look at this, so you do not negotiate with them. You basically state to them the conditions which they have to accept. 
If they do not accept, well, the SMO continues until it is over. What will be the end of SMO, how it is defined? Well, that's the beauty of this whole situation. While Russians obviously stated in December of 2021 what they would like to see and what they demand to see. In terms on operational level, for example, in terms of the ground operations, and we're talking about massive scale operations, where will Russia stop? Russians now do not negotiate or discuss it with anybody from NATO, you know, United States, Great Britain, or whatever. Um, so forget about those. Those are not players, really. Russians have the uh, strategic discussion in Kremlin right now. And this is strategic discussion about the where do we stop. That's the only discussion they have now. They don't care about what United States says. It's, it's over for the Western world. What they have is how much we have to take on our balance of our country. Because we know that, for example, the uh, figure has been already articulated by none other than Putin at Valdai conference. Population of Ukraine right now is 19.5 million. It is more than two times smaller than when uh, uh, Ukraine uh, uh, started its uh, existence at the um, uh, state, state, separate state, independent state. So uh, how many of those people, most of who, not all, but most of who hate Russian guts, how many of them you take on your... Uh, so to speak, balance, because you need to not only care of them, which Russia does really well with Russia resources, in terms of you can look up Mariupol, how it is beautifully restored and things of this nature, but how many of them you have to literally re-educate, because many of them are sincere bearers of the Nazi Bandera ideology. That's the issue. So we know the only thing which now, which I think so, Odessa will be taken. After that, probably some ramp, which uh, ramp state, which left in Kiev and around Kiev, you know, in Western Ukraine. That's it. So, but this is again, this is all speculation. And this is the key discussion in Kremlin right now. So, there you go. Has Russia ever been interested in the Western part of Ukraine? Think, I assume, that nobody wants Western Ukraine. Nobody. These are people who have this embedded, I mean, deeply run Bandera uh, ideology. And uh, unless you do their, uh, something on the level of their purchase, you know, uh, why do you need that, you know? Then there's another thing, of course, that uh, if this is allowed to exist at, as the part of something larger, well, if Poland wants it, well, Poland will, uh, by you know, taking the Western Ukraine into its fold, it's going to, it's already affecting Poles in the most uh, uh, profound and most unpleasant way. So that's going to be the end of the Poland as we know it. And so it's a complex issue. You cannot go like Israelis and put them, you know, into some kind of the ghetto, like, uh, for example, Gaza, and expect them to be normal people. You know, they're not going to, uh, uh, so to speak, change their ways for generations. It is actually embedded in their position there. It was grown up there and gestated for centuries, more than centuries. So... 
Uh, I don't know, but no, I don't think so. Russia wants to deal with Western Ukraine at all. And what is important for Russia probably to move this Western Ukraine part and throw it over the fence, if you wish, you know, like you have the dead cat, you throw the fence to the neighbor, let them deal with that, you know, so and... uh, uh, evidently, Poland has issues now with that too. It seems that Russia is already on offensive, isn't it? Oh yeah, Russia was on offensive for a while. It was just a matter of again, Russians do not rush uh, to do anything. It's a classic uh, economy of force uh, posture. You know, why would you uh, actually uh, sacrifice more soldiers, more soldiers than you need to? And don't forget also Israel actually, on the request of the United States, shipped pretty much huge stocks of the uh, 155 millimeter ammunition to Ukraine, which was like uh, Kremlin was scratching its head and like, wow, so these are our friends now, you know, when because Russia-Israeli relations were always kind of moderately good, you know, so very, I mean, there was a good dynamics, good flavor about them. Not anymore. Israel just shown that, yeah, is no friend of Russia. So in this particular case, I don't know. I mean, they can send whatever they can, you know. Uh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't change anything in terms of the, obviously, outcome, which already decided in Ukraine. But in terms of Israel's stock of ammunition, 155 millimeters, again, let's keep in mind the scale. The Gaza Strip is merely 150 square miles piece of land. So how many, how much of artillery you need there? Not very much, honestly, you know. So and Israel has all means to kind of do the nasty thing there. So I wouldn't say that this is that important. Some of it will go, of course, towards Israel, no doubt about. But we're looking again, people have to keep in mind scale almost uh, 700 miles long uh, uh, front line and hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of troops uh, on both sides. And here we have, yeah, we have primarily 2 million of the civilians, you know, basically concentrated in a very small piece of land. These are incomparable in terms of scale. Although, again, we might see, we're probably already seeing the unbelievable scale of the war crimes committed by Israel. You know, in terms of blowing up, well, again, more, very much of it will be indiscriminate and many, obviously, Palestinian civilians will die uh, as the result of that. It seems that Europe is not that united that we thought there would be. Yeah, uh, first, uh, let me put it this way. United Kingdom and France as the states, as we used to know them, are done. They are will not exist as uh, coherent nations probably by 2015. So in this case, it doesn't really matter. The, the only thing the French can, who, who can they elect? I mean, they elect Macron one after, after another time. So, you know, and they every time I hear this, you know, complaints that, oh, don't judge us like that because we do not elect, you know, uh, uh, we elect only those who are imposed on us. Well, I'm sorry, guys, you still elect them. You have the power of voice. So you elected Macron, live with him. You have this uh, clown circus in London, live with that. You know, so your parties, you don't have any conservative parties anymore. So Germany is uh, iffy. 
But primarily, Western Europe is done as the Western civilization as it used to be. So I do not even pay that much attention to them, you know. So maybe uh, you will have another kind of, you know, uh, knee-jerk reaction by Italians. But then again, they elected fraud. Anybody who had a brain, I mean, or half a brain could see that Meloni was a globalist fraud. They elected her. So, hey, go right ahead. They don't have people and real statesmen anymore. Eastern Europe is somewhat different. <clears throat> and when you look at Viktor Orban, or you have the situation with Slovakia, and we probably will have some kind of the uh, political maneuvering in Poland, those people do want to preserve their culture. They do not want war. They want to preserve their culture, normal human values, like obviously their family values. Uh, you know, they do not want this wokeness. They do not want, want this insanity, gender affirmative insanity and things of this nature. So they will uh, remain somewhat uh, not independent. They are still parts of EU and NATO. But as you saw yourself on the example of Mr. Orban, who is a shining example of actual conservative government uh, and conservative party, Fidesz, which wins one election after another, you can stave off. You can defend against this uber-liberal globalist uh, uh, agenda. You can defend your, your party. And obviously, in this particular case, how can you depend it? You have to rely on Russia in this particular case because Russia provides the energy for literally physical energy for the economists to uh, operate there, to be you know viable. And uh, Slovakia is just one of the latest examples. And I think so. Uh, we will have a difference between the what is called the old Europe, which is done. I don't think so. They have the way to save themselves. For example, you saw yourself, there was already the one of the, I believe, in Bavaria, AFD, which is the alternative for Germany, uh, 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 high-level high person, have been actually assaulted with the syringe, with some kind of... It's already started, you know. They will not allow this party to appear, in, uh, you know, uh, to be able to form the government. In Germany, I don't think so. And Germans will vote anyway for it. Doesn't matter what polls show. Polls show one thing, then the uh, election day comes. And even if you consider that they probably do some, uh, so to speak, irregularities in terms of the election process, they still vote in the end for the what they always voted for. So it's kind of you know uh, you cannot feel stupid anymore. You know, so that's what it is. Yeah, there are some uh, layers of societies like in France or even in UK or in Germany who uh, understand that, but I don't think so they are majority. The only country that still is totally behind continuation of this war in Ukraine is the UK. They're yeah. trying to do everything to continue this war. Where does this animosity come from? Well, because they are losers. Uh, it used to be great empire. You know, and uh, let's let's be frank, uh, and they uh, diminished themselves very much. And uh, since the uh, 1950, it was one just steady way down for the United Kingdom. And now what you see, you have uh, this island, or rather 
group of islands whose territory is smaller probably than, uh, you know, uh, one of the regions of Russia. Their army is a joke. They don't have real military capacity. Their navy is also this. Uh, they lost their uh, commercial airspace industry. They lost its uh, uh, combat airspace <laughs> industry. They lost pretty much everything except for you. Here and there you have the like, you know, glimpses of the former Great Britain's glory, like Rolls Royce, you know, some other things, and maybe English Premier League, you know. That's about it. I mean, London is dirty. If you take, uh, you know, get out of the touristy places, it is dirty. It is absolutely not English anymore. And I mean, come on, let's face it, it's primarily becoming Pakistani city and other, you know, Asian and Arab and what have you, uh, uh, minorities, which are probably going to be the majority, if not already. So, and when you look at that, it, it's a country in a complete decline. I mean, it's, and so you have now these pompous guys who still remember when the Oxford, you know, education was valuable and things like that. I mean, you saw yourself what Oxford produces. When you have the prime minister who has degree in literature, forgive me, and the, I'm talking about Boris Johnson, or you have Liz Truss who doesn't know even basic facts of uh, geography, or you have the Rishi Sunak, or you, you have this, uh, I mean, it's pathetic, I'm sorry. And the more they feel that they are pathetic, which they are, the more they feel how incredibly small and insignificant they are. And without United States, they are nobody. They not they are not even prime time, you know, uh, European power. That's where the hatred comes because obviously they see Russia. And again, take any Londoner who haven't been to Russia and read all this propaganda, and bring them to Russia in Moscow, Saint Petersburg, Sochi, Yekaterinburg, Novosibirsk, or Vladivostok. They will have their actually cognitive dissonance and sh cultural shock because England looks like, uh, yeah, they still have some, uh, you know, uh, remaining uh, mythology of their powerful finances of London, just to demonstrate to you when they in, uh, uh, basically impose this uh, uh, price cap for Russian oil. One of the major attachment to it was that nothing, uh, no ship, no tanker can be now insured by, which was primarily the Lloyd Insurance and the, those insurance conglomerates in London. Well, guess what? They forgot that Russia is much more, <laughs> much richer than they are, and Russians bought this so-called shadow, shadow tanker fleet. And what Russians did, they opened their own maritime insurance corporation, which insures those uh, fleets uh, with, the, uh, with the agreement with whatever the destination is, be that India, be that China, what have you. And it works just fine without uh, London. And that's the shock for them. I think one of the key statements of Putin at the Valdai Discussion Club was this. Mm -hmm. He said that the era of colonialism is over. And he said that we are defending our borders, our culture, and our people. This is this is a key statement to understand his mindset. What's your take on this? Oh, um, it's been uh, basically a, a long evolution of uh, Vladimir Putin in sense of the uh, uh, political, economical outlook, 
But in terms of ideology, Vladimir Putin always was and remains today more than ever what is called moderate Russian nationalist. And there's nothing wrong with being moderate nationalist. You don't want to become to the, go to the extremes, but you're a real, uh, well, he uses the word uh, patriotism because there is a, this good distinction of the nationalist, uh, uh, nationalist uh, hates everything outside his nation, his nation. While patriotism, patriot loves his nation and does not reject what is outside. So it's kind of play of the terms and definitions, but he is the moderate Russian nationalist. And you cannot take this away because, and that's what uh, his appeal is to the overwhelming majority of Russians. And this is very clear. Before this war started, we know that they were talking about, we cannot talk, we cannot negotiate with Putin. What they were looking for in Russia, Medvedev? Fifth column, that's the only thing they are looking for. They always looked for people who are not even dissidents. I mean, dissidents also vary. Uh, no, they were looking for the Navalny type uh, characters, okay, which are fully bought, paid for, and bought by the uh, CIA and all those, you know, NGOs. They look for people of this nature who would basically just remove their national considerations from the Russian policies, basically bring Russia back to the catastrophe of 1990s and will allow the uh, basically rape and pillage of the Russian nation by the, uh, you know, uh, uh, international corporations or primarily transnational corporations. That's the only thing they want to see. They don't care about Russia. First, West doesn't know Russia. That's the issue, you know. That's the other thing, because basically, as I already stated, I'm on the record, most of what goes in terms of the country studies, foreign policy, uh, educational establishment, be that Ivy League like Harvard, Yale or Princeton or Oxford, and it's all garbage. They don't teach anything that they people, most of people who teach this professors in the United States or in Great Britain or elsewhere, they are totally uh, actually, uh, how to put it away, not only illiterate, they unqualified, but they are brainwashed themselves because, and this was happening since the times of the Soviet Union. And that is why they, uh, today, when you look at this, you have illiterate people, literally, you know, who do not understand what Russia is. And, um, in this particular case, I mean, what can I say? I mean, we are looking at the catastrophic degradation of the Western elites. That is why uh, they always kind of project their psychopathic impulses, you know, onto Russia, thinking that they understand because you have this whole uh, uh, cabal of so-called Russia specialists, former Russians, you know, most of them from the liberal wing who are, have zero, almost zero support in Russia, but they are the ones who shape those perceptions by those not very cultured people. Make no mistake. Look at the Western elites. Look at Anthony Blinken. Look at uh, Boris Johnson. Look at Rishi Sunak. Look at Victoria Nuland. Look at anybody else. They are not very cultured people. They are badly read. They might know a couple more in foreign languages, but they lack fundamental culture, which expresses itself as class and understanding of the opposite, 
they have no toolkit for that. American diplomacy is, a, I mean, it's a circus, it's a joke. You know, it's like, there are no diplomats in the United States, let's put it this way. So when you look at them, they are, oh my God, those people, it's just ridiculous. You cannot talk to them. You cannot reason with them because they are so uncultured. And the same goes for United Kingdom or whatever, you know? And that's why, who, who, who do you talk to? Yeah, just show me the real statesman, real political figure you can talk to who has the influence, power, and everything. What? You're going to talk to APAC? Russia's not going to talk to APAC. But this is what uh, is being run. Uh, th those people who run essentially the America's foreign policy. Mm -hmm.